0: On your way out, let's turn to Matthew chapter sixteen. So Matthew sixteen is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. And as you head that direction, uh, let me just remind you that in the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, his major theme—he's writing to a Jewish audience—and as he's uh, writing there, his theme is Jesus is the Messiah, their long-awaited King, their Mashiach, the Anointed One, is what that word means, and and. Those that would be anointed in the nation of Israel would be uh, kings and priests, and so we know that Jesus, in the order of Melchizedek, he is a both king and a priest, and so he is the anointed one. So this is the big picture theme of the Gospel according to Matthew, but then inside of that, we see uh, various outlines and chapter breaks as Matthew presents Jesus as the king. In chapters one through ten, we see the king as being revealed, this unveiling of their Messiah. And then a transition in chapter 11, the king is going to be resisted in chapters 11 through 13. We covered that a few weeks back. And now here we are in chapter 16 in the middle of the king retreating. And so where we're going to pick up is he is in the middle of this retreat. But recall with me that the key word in the gospel of Matthew is the word fulfilled. That if he was to be their Messiah, he would have to fulfill prophecy. Now, as he fulfills prophecy, remember Matthew deals with us topically, not chronologically through the Word of God. As he fulfills prophecy, what we find is there are many prophecies that concern uh, the death of the Messiah. The cutting off is what Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 says, that when the Messiah, the Prince, comes, he will be, before he is fully uh, put into office, he will actually be cut off. And in the Old Testament, any time you see a group or a people that are cut off, they are literally put outside the camp. It means, uh, in other words, to die. That's essentially what he's spelling out for us. So we are in chapter 16 with the king retreating. And as we head that direction, uh, know that Jesus doesn't just retreat alone. He goes away, and he is found by the multitudes. But he also intentionally takes the disciples with him, and he uses this time to teach and train them. And so as we uh, hope and desire to become disciples of Jesus, we'll dig into this and see what words he has, not only for them 2,000 years ago, but for us right here today. So chapter 16, verse 1. And then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And so Jesus is approached by the Pharisees and the Sadducees now the Pharisees are a group of people that we have seen uh, at various times throughout our study through Matthew and, and they are what we would call the religious right the fence of the law is what they called themselves they believed it was their position in Jewish culture to actually defend the law of Moses from anyone that wanted to attack it and so what Jesus tells the Pharisees Uh, in chapter 15, is because of all the rules and regulations, all their attempts to defend the law, they'd actually managed to negate the law. Imagine that, that their desire initially started off to actually defend God's word, but in an effort to defend the word of God, they had actually negated the word of God. And so a terrible position to be in for these Pharisees. But they are actually accompanied in this spot, we're told the Pharisees and the Sadducees came together. Now these two were on polar opposites of the political spectrum. The Sadducees were the liberals, the materialists. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the afterlife, which is precisely why they're so sad, you see. Okay, that's listen, it's not going to get better. You might as, you're going to have to just laugh or it's going to be awkward for all of us. So there you go. Now, uh, these groups, what I'm getting at here is these two groups hated one another. They did not like each other at all. But in fact, the only thing they could g- agree on is they hated Jesus worse. Can you imagine? These two political groups, these two religious groups, the only thing they could agree on was we don't like that guy and what he is bringing about. And so they come to him and they say uh, to him, show us a sign, but not just any sign, a sign from heaven. Now, first of all, I hope you read this knowing that we've studied all these miracles and the things that have taken place through Matthew and you scratch your head about the way that I am right now. Wondering, what in the world? They're coming asking for a sign. They've seen 5,000 people fed miraculously. They've seen 4,000 people fed miraculously. They've seen demons exercised and the lame walk and the blind see. All these unbelievable miracles and signs. And yet, what do they ask for? Will you show us a sign? But they don't ask for just any uh, sign. They ask for a sign from heaven. Why did they ask this? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's because it was believed that even false prophets, even those that were taken over by demons, could actually perform some signs. Remember as Moses goes to Pharaoh and he does some of these signs and wonders? What happens is some of Pharaoh's magicians could actually do some signs, but what they also believed is that only God could actually affect the heavens. They looked up to the skies. So only God could bring about a sign from heaven heaven now what the apostle paul says is something else was actually taking place for these pharisees and the sadducees in second corinthians chapter 3 verse 14 this is what paul writes to the church at corinth he says but their minds were blinded for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the old testament because the veil is taken away in christ So what's actually happening is these Pharisees and Sadducees have a veil over their eyes because they would not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Messiah that they have been waiting for for 1,500 years, by the way. They didn't believe in him, and so therefore they couldn't read their Old Testament and actually see that he was standing right in front of them, which is precisely the same thing that happens to this very day for people. That do not believe that refuse to have enough faith to believe that jesus is god they pick this up and it looks like any old book and yet as you allow yourself even ever so slightly to begin to believe what happens is the word of god it's completely opened up the veil is lifted and that's precisely what the apostle paul is addressing and so we see even a famed You know, supposedly intelligent, supposedly educated people like Richard Dawkins, noted atheist. This is a quote from him in an interview in 2012. He said, even if a 900-foot-tall Jesus appeared and said, I am here, I would not believe it. You see, even the audacity that we have, that we refuse to believe when the signs are right there in front of our very eyes. Now then, continue to see what Jesus's response is in verse 2 and he answered and said to them When it is evening you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red and in the morning it will be foul weather for the sky is red and threatening Hypocrites you know how to discern the face of the sky but you cannot discern the sign of the times A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of Jonah and he left and departed. And so they approach Jesus, asking for a sign from the heavens, and what he says to them is that even you, as hypocrites, look up to the sky and you know that the sky is giving you an indication of what it's going to be like today. Right? We know that today not a great day for a cookout. This picture here I took off of Facebook, this is over the top of Mattoon on Tuesday night. You don't have to be Kevin Orpert or Jesse Walker to be able to know that's not a great day for a bonfire. Right, You look up and go, it's probably time to get the patio furniture inside or go to Rule King and get a new trampoline because we're going to need it here in just a few minutes. So what he's saying to them is that even for you, you look at the sky and you know what's getting ready to take place and yet you completely ignore it. Now Jesus is using a physical example, but he's trying to get them to understand something spiritual. It's that they should have known their Old Testament scriptures. Jesus was constantly telling them, have you not read... When the job of the Pharisees and the scribes was to read, their whole job was to read and know and understand the scriptures and, and, and uh, chapters just like Daniel chapter 9 that we just looked at, where he explicitly predicts the coming of the Messiah in Daniel chapter 9 to the very day. And they should have known it. That's what Jesus is saying. You cannot discern the sign of the times. And this is what happens to you and I when we allow our spiritual eyes to be blinded, we can't look around and actually see what's happening. We can't even look to the sky and know that it's probably going to rain today. And so, in verse 4, he tells them, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, your question is, what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? I'm so glad you asked. Jonah, you remember from Bible school and Sunday school, was this prophet that gets swallowed by a great fish. But I will tell you that Jonah in the Old Testament is actually a type of Christ. Why do I say that? Because Jesus just said that. He's comparing himself to Jonah. What we know is that Jonah was a prophet from the northern portion of Israel. And at this time, the world powers were Assyria. Jonah is called by God to go to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the dominant world power. Jonah decides to do the exact opposite. Now, for very good reason, by the way, the Assyrians historically were notably awful people. In fact, many villages, when they knew the Assyrians were getting ready to invade, uh, they would just commit mass suicide to avoid getting captured by the Assyrians. Uh, Some of their favorite things to do were uh, they would take you and your whole family Uh, strip you completely down to no clothes, and then uh, hook you together with fish hooks and lead you out of the village daisy-chained together. Not exactly great people to invite over for Mother's Day, by the way. This is precisely what Jonah is knowing. I do not want to go to these people. Uh, Jonah also, interestingly enough, was from northern Israel. The first place that the Assyrians invaded in Israel was northern Israel. So very likely his own family was taken captive, probably killed by the Assyrians. Now you begin to understand why he didn't want to go to Nineveh so badly. And so we're told he goes down to Joppa, he goes into a boat, and he goes down the bottom of the boat to head down to Tarshish, the exact opposite place from Nineveh on the map. You notice the pattern. He went down, down, and down. An indication of the spiritual condition of Jonah. So, as he heads down to the bottom of the boat, what happens? God sends a great storm out on the Mediterranean Sea. This is such a storm, even the sailors know this is something supernatural. This is not a normal Mediterranean storm. And so, they begin to pray to all their pagan gods while Jonah sleeps. And so, they wake him up and they say, Awake, you sleeper, what's going on? You need to pray to your God. And Jonah knows that it's actually him that's the cause. And so, to make him a little bit Christ-like, he actually has them. He volunteers to be thrown overboard. The sailors didn't want to throw him over, but because he insisted they throw him over, so the wrath of God would be satisfied. Jonah is then promptly swallowed up by the great fish. That's the part of the Bible story we usually remember. He is taken down into the ocean for Three days and three nights he's there in the ocean as Jesus said he would be in the belly of the earth. Now, three days later, what happens? Jonah is thrown up. He's puked up on the shore. And uh, there he proceeds uh, to Nineveh. By the way, to share the good news of a message of repentance. You know what the translation of gospel is? Good news. And to make the story a little more interesting, he doesn't go and share it with Jews. He goes and shares the gospel message with Gentiles who are all saved, all brought to the Lord. And now you begin to see the similarities between Jesus and Jonah. Now, Jesus is giving them this as a sign because it's a sign of resurrection. That's the important piece to understand, that without the resurrection, there is no hope for eternal life. That if we just want to be good people, believe in Jesus, but it just stops there, there is no resurrection. If he was not resurrected, what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. That if we don't have the hope of resurrection, if this is as close to heaven as we ever get, I think you'd agree with me. This is one hell of a heaven. (laughs) I mean, this is not a great heaven if this is as good as it gets. And yet, because of the resurrection, the proof that the payment was accepted, we now have an even greater promise, which means if you believe in Jesus as your Savior, this is as close to hell as you're ever going to get in this life. What a glorious promise. The worst the world can throw at you This is as bad as it's going to get. Now then, continuing on to verse 5 of Matthew 16. And now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 or how many baskets you took up or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood and he that he was not... Uh, Excuse me. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so, as we begin in this uh, small section, we see the disciples, as they're headed back in the boat to go to the other side of the Galilee, they've forgotten to pack their lunch. They, if you've ever packed with kids, the first thing you know to pack is snacks, right? They didn't bring snacks along with them. And so they get in and they're like, oh no. We forgot the snacks, which is kind of interesting because if you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, all these huge groups of people gathered together and they didn't pack a lunch. And the disciples were all incensed. They were all upset. How can all these people come together? How are we going to feed all these people? Even if we had 200 days' wages, we couldn't feed them all. Oh, they were upset, moaned and groaned about it. And yet, here these guys are, and they forgot to pack lunch it's amazing to me how bad my sin looks on you right our sin always looks worse on somebody else than it does on ourselves why well that's because I want to judge me by my motives and I want to judge you by your actions that's why that's a way easier way to do it So the disciples know that they've messed up. They're sure that Jesus is uh, catching them in it, and and that's why they're upset about forgetting to bring bread. Oh, no. But Jesus tells them, oh, you have little faith. You, You don't even understand that I'm speaking to you not about bread, but I'm talking to you about spiritual matters. You see, so often what Jesus is trying to do is he's trying to use a physical circumstance to help us understand something that's actually spiritual that's actually eternal. And think back through scripture with me. John chapter three. We had the very famous John three sixteen encounter. But that encounter is actually between Jesus and the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus. It was a conversation between the two of them. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He wants to understand these spiritual things that Jesus is teaching. And so he asked them about it and Jesus says, look, unless you're born again, you're not gonna get the opportunity to go to heaven. Nicodemus immediately thinks about the physical I'm an old man how is it possible for me to go back in my mother's womb it doesn't even make sense but Jesus says look if I would have explained uh, earthly things to you you would have had earthly understanding now I'm trying to explain spiritual things you have no spiritual understanding he says listen Nico you're not following me this is a spiritual matter at hand Similarly, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, Jesus goes to Samaria. By the way, this is a place that no good Jewish boy would ever go is Samaria. It's the bad part of town. They would typically avoid it at all costs. Jesus goes there just specifically to sit down with this woman who is of ill reputation. She's been married uh, not once, not twice, but five times. Things haven't gone uh, well for her. She tries to avoid the public, in fact. So Jesus shows up at the time where he knows she's going to be there and asks her for a drink of water. You know, she's completely put off by this because what would a Jewish male be doing asking a female for a drink of water? And Jesus says, listen, if you would have known who you're talking to, you would have asked me for a drink because the water I have, you're never going to thirst again. And what she say, boy, I've got to get some of that water. She's thinking, I need to have this water where I don't have to be thirsty again because I don't want to come back to this well again. I don't want to be embarrassed anymore. People talk about me in my little small town. She was relating the spiritual truth that Jesus was trying to share to her physical circumstance, not understanding he's talking about the living water that flowed from him, that cleanses from the inside out, not the outside in. Lastly, John chapter 6, we see this story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. What happens after he gets done feeding the 5,000 is that he tells the crowd, I am the bread of life. And they're all eating their their fish and their loaves like, that's great, thanks, Jesus. We're going to go back to our food. And he says, no, listen, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you can't be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And they, they immediately were put off. They're like, this guy is weird. Like, what, what a creep. He's talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Like He's some kind of sick cannibal. And we're told in John 6 that many were put off by him and they departed. They left. Why? Because they had related the spiritual thing back to their physical bodies. And so what I wanted to share with you about this is that so often we miss what God is trying to do with us spiritually in the middle of a physical storm. He brings sickness about. A, a, a disease that we weren't counting on a disruption in our family we didn't we didn't see this coming and so we begin to see only the physical only the problems only these issues on surface level not realizing he actually wants to address something much deeper something eternal something spiritual now then they finally do get it in verse eleven Jesus says How is it that you don't understand and so that finally in verse twelve they get what they're What Jesus is trying to get at. It's the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Leaven in the Bible, (coughs) there are Bible types throughout our Old Testament. Leaven is always a picture of sin. And if you think about it, leaven, what does it do? It ferments, it breaks down, it disrupts. It doesn't mean you can't ever eat a nice big old yeast roll. That's not the point. The idea is leaven is a picture of sin in the Bible. And so Jesus is talking specifically about the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of the Sadducees, these far right legalists. They want to follow all the rules. And if you want to go to a New Testament epistle that deals with this, go to the book of Galatians. Spend some time reading what Paul had to say to these people that were so into the rules and the regulations, and we have to do it just a certain way that Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, Oh foolish Galatians, <laughs> you fools. Why are you trying to finish in the flesh what Jesus started in the spirit? You see, you had this spiritual transformation. You had this unbelievable spiritual moment, and now you're trying to work your way into heaven. And the thing is, we can't work hard enough. And the reality is for you, if you're going to try to work your way into heaven, I got bad news for you. The Catholics are way ahead of you. I mean, they do—they do a way better job than you Protestants at working your way to heaven. That's a Bible joke. It's okay. You can laugh. Only nervous laughter today. The the opposite side is true, though, of the Sadducees. These were materialists, liberals, and what we find is Paul writes the letter to the Colossians to address the liberal ideas of this church. And what he says in Colossians chapter two, verse eight. He says this: Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Traditions, philosophies, worldviews on things, what Paul is trying to communicate to these materialists is: look, you're never going to be able to get enough. You're never going to be able to have enough. It's not going to work. You can't be studied and learned enough and educated enough to ever uh, get away with this. It has to all come back to Jesus. That's the bottom line. So how then are we to conduct ourselves? Here's what it looks like. A little bit of legalism when legalism is required. Right? There are times where rules and order need to be put in place. It's not just freewheeling. It's not motley crew Girls, 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 that's probably not a great way to go about life. We need to have some kind of rules, some kind of regulation put in place, and yet uh, there are times, there are times, more often than not, for us who, who can tend to veer towards the side of legalism where we got to relax a little bit. we got to let up just a little bit. We've got to allow grace to actually flow from us. No one's going to want to come if we just want to put our thumb on them all the time. You must live like this and love jesus Ooh. nobody's going to want to live like that now on the other side if we go too liberal with it uh, we're, we're going to end up going down a bad road as well and so as christians we're called into a place of actual uh, balance a proper balance a healthy balance that jesus himself uh, exhibits Now then, continuing on in verse 13, And when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they answered and said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? In verse 16, And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was jesus the christ and so jesus brings them in verse 13 to this place of caesarea philippi Uh, in the old testament this is an area known as a because they would worship on the top of this cliff that i've got up here on the screen they would worship the mythological god of pan he was that half man half goat looking thing that played the flute kind of a creepy little guy but that's who they would worship in this area of Penos. Now, on Jesus' day, this area was renovated. They built a city there. It was known as Caesarea Philippi. Herod Philip gave it as a city, as a tribute to the Caesar at the time. And so that's where it got the name. But it was known as like the Las Vegas of northern Israel. I mean, what happened in Caesarea Philippi stayed in Caesarea Philippi. You can about imagine. Let your mind run wild with what all was taking place, especially at a place that was known for pagan idolatry and worship. And so Jesus brings them here of all places. What a strange place to bring his disciples. And he and he says to them, he asks them this question. He knows people talk about him, and he says, "Who do men say that I am?" And so they give him several answers. Some say, uh, "You're John the Baptist." People thought that John the Baptist had been resurrected, and this is who Jesus is. Uh, others thought that he was Elijah because of all the great works he could do. And then still others thought that he was Jeremiah the prophet. I think it's interesting that they thought that he was Jeremiah, because Jeremiah in the Old Testament is known as the weeping prophet. His ministry was one that actually saw the destruction of Israel. He cried over Jerusalem being carried off to Babylon, which gives you a little bit of insight to Jesus's character, right? That as he looked at the people all around, he probably was overcome with emotion because he knew that in just a short while, 70 A.D., in fact, that all of Jerusalem, all of Israel, was going to be wiped out uh, by the Romans. And so he, he was a, a man of many sorrows, is what the Old Testament told us he was going to be like. Now then in verse 15, Jesus asks uh, them, and if we stopped here today, we're not going to stop here today, even though you probably would like me to, but if we did, If we stopped here, this is the most important question uh, that has ever been asked for all of eternity. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? That is a question that each of us has to answer, either in this life or the next. My hope, my prayer for each of you is that you answer that question, you humble yourself in this life while you have the opportunity. Because if not, um, for all of eternity, uh, you will be humbled. Humble yourself before you have to be humbled by God Almighty. And so Jesus asked them this question, who do you say that I am? For those that believe in Jesus, hopefully you can have an answer somewhat like Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Mashiach. What do we read in verse 20? You are Jesus, the Christ, Yeshua, right? Jehovah is salvation. That's what his very name meant. And so Peter gives this unbelievable answer, and Jesus reacts in in an even more unbelievable way. He tells him in verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my God, my Father from heaven is the one who revealed it. And he goes on to say something that's been debated in church history for thousands of years. He says, uh, and I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, upon this rock. And so people in church history have tried to make uh, Peter the actual foundation of the church. Some believe that he was the very first pope. Now, I would challenge that a little bit, because if you look at the words in the Greek, What Jesus actually says is, you are Petros. That was Peter's nickname. And what it means is, little stone, or little pebble. And then he goes on to say, and upon this rock, the word is Petra. It means a mountain cliff, a large boulder, a huge stone. This is what I'm going to build my church upon. Jesus wasn't referring to Peter as the foundation of the church, but instead The testimony of Peter, which is you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It wasn't Peter the man. It was the words, the testimony of him. Now, this was not the first time that Peter had actually said that you are the Christ, the Son of God. When Jesus saw him uh, to an unbelievable catch of fish there on the Sea of Galilee, Peter gets off the, the boat and he worships Jesus down at his feet, proclaims him to be God. There are other examples of this in the New Testament, but for the sake of time, I want to just share with you that only in this occasion does Jesus actually tell Peter that you are blessed, that this is a spiritual thing that's been revealed to you, and the question is why. Well, I believe it's because it wasn't birthed out out of a miracle. It wasn't an emotional response to a situation. But Peter, looking at what all had taken place, all the things that he had seen, he actually reasoned logically in his mind. And do you understand that Isaiah says, come let us reason together? We have a very reasonable, defendable faith. And so Peter's now in this spot where he's able to sit back logically and go, wait a minute, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And I want to share that because Oftentimes in church, we can have emotional responses. And I want to encourage you to to have emotional responses. Don't be non-emotional, right? I'm a recovering Baptist. It's hard for us sometimes. But it's okay to be emotional at times in church. It's all right. But if your faith is only birthed out of emotion, if it's only coming from a spot of emotion, uh, then you're just simply going to be left as an emotional person never solidly grounded on the rock of Jesus Christ it must be a logical conclusion that you come to and he will lead you to that place because here's the thing about miracles miracles never saved anybody the only things that miracles ever did is they just proved what scripture already said and so if you're dependent consistently upon miracles Uh, What you're going to seek is the next uh, miracle. You're going to have to see the next miracle in order for your faith to be bolstered. And then after that, you're going to have to see another and another and another. And it was more about the miracle. It was never about Scripture. It was never about Jesus. He's the thing that never changes. He's the thing that never transitions. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what Jesus is saying is, Based upon this testimony that Peter's just given, that based upon this, that even, read with me there, the gates of Hades cannot prevail against you. And so, the promise here is that upon the confession, upon this testimony, that the gates of hell cannot withstand us as Christians. Now think about gates for just a second. Uh, Gates are uh, in fact stationary things gates do not make advances gates are a defense mechanism what Jesus is saying is we are to be on the offense not on the defense and far too often I think uh, we come in church and we sit and we're limping along through this Christian life and we think we're just trying to endure from one season to the next And, and by the way some of the Christian life does look like endurance It is just trying to get to the next day. But that's not how we're called to live every day. We're actually called to be on the offensive. We are called to storm the very gates of hell, not merely to just limp into eternity. And so for you and I, what Jesus is saying is we have been given the keys to the kingdom as believers. We've also been given the keys to the gates of hell to shut those things and to lock those things and to help people prevent themselves from going into that spot. Now then in verse 21, And from that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Remember the sign of Jonah. And then Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are not mindful of things of God, but the things of men. And so what we see is, here's Peter. Um, He's just been praised and blessed by God. Right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then the very next section of Scripture, what do we see? Peter's being rebuked, and the Lord tells him, Get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but I can go from hero to zero in my house, in my spiritual walk, almost on a dime. I've got amazing agility for an overweight guy. I mean, I can stop and pivot. Like, hang on a second, I'll act like a bonehead. Give me just a minute. And and, and here's Peter. I love him for it, though, because he's he's done this amazing thing, this unbelievable testimony, and then on a dime he's called Satan. Here's a couple things I want to share with you, though, about Peter. Um, First of all, he was not infallible. That there are some in church history that want to tell us that Peter uh, was was a man without sin. That he was an infallible guy. You clearly look at the text and you can see he's got a lot of flaws. Now, those that say that will say, but after the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2, that day of Pentecost, Peter began to preach boldly. Many came to know Jesus. And so from that point on, he was infallible. Uh, But those have not read Galatians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul said that he had to get up in Peter's face and actually rebuke him for not uh, sitting with the Gentiles. He still had flaws. He still had issues, holes in his game. But here's the thing. Um, This denial right here of Jesus going to the cross is actually the beginning of Peter's fall and denial at the crucifixion of Jesus. It wasn't that day that he denied Jesus that it began. It was right here in this place, and I share that to say that if we deny any part of Christ, we actually deny all of Christ. I'll repeat that. If we deny any part of him, we deny all of him. We don't get to pick and choose what pieces of this. We want to believe, and we don't want to believe. And so this is the issue for Peter. But I want to finish with this on him, that in spite of this, God used him. In spite of his flaws, in spite of his massive holes in his game, God was still able to use uh, Peter. And thank God, by the way, that he takes people with glaring flaws and uses them. Because if not, I don't get to sit here and talk to you right now. If he doesn't use people with major holes in their game, then I don't know who he would use because we all have got our issues we've all got our shortcomings and so I wanted to share that to say that failures in ministry failures in ministries do not negate the great work God did in that ministry I put a picture of a man it may be familiar to some of you uh, maybe not to all of you but that man's name was Ravi Zacharias unbelievable Christian apologist um, if you look up any of his work, read any of his books, his ability to defend the Christian faith. For a man who was born in India as a Hindu, tried to commit suicide at 17, came miraculously to Christ in a hospital bed, he went on to bega- to become one of the most renowned apologists in all of Christianity. He died uh, a few months back, and after his death, uh, all kind of reports have now come out about uh, him having uh, sexual relations with uh, people outside of marriage. And so all these accusations have now come to a man who cannot defend himself. Uh, Very likely, uh, several of them are probably true. And so the reaction in the Christian community, by and large, at least from what I've seen in social media, has been this. I'm going to take every book this man ever wrote, I'm going to throw it out. I'm going to set fire to it. But the thing is, We cannot just take every single thing that's been done by men and throw out the Word of God. The work of his ministry should not be negated because the man had flaws. The reality of this is that if there was TMZ and social media and all these things at the time of the Apostle Peter, there wouldn't be the Apostle Peter. There was probably no more flawed guy in the New Testament than this guy, and yet he's the start of the Christian church. But we become so into running people down the road and making sure that they don't ever have a voice again that we actually lose the good things that they did while they were in ministry. Please understand, I'm not standing up for what the man did. What I'm trying to say is there are lots of flawed, broken individuals that are leading these ministries. They are suspect to another fall. And I want to share with you what uh, someone told me years ago, and it was this, don't ever let a man keep you from the man. That so often we can let the stumble and the fall of a man keep us away from the man, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one we can truly look up to and go, he is never going to let me down, guaranteed. Now then, continuing... As we wrap up this morning, and I promise we are wrapping up, verse 24, And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father and with His angels, and then He will reward according to His works. And so what we see is Jesus now taking it a step further, and He says, look, if you want to follow after Me, you have to deny yourselves, uh, take up your cross, and follow Me. Important to understand, and, and I'm not trying to say we shouldn't wear cross necklaces, so please understand but the cross itself is a symbol of pain and shame and, and, and torture. That's what Jesus is saying when he says take up your cross. He's essentially saying you are going to have shame come upon you. There's going to be people probably even within your own family, within your own camp, they're going to come up against you. It's not going to be an easy road. That's essentially what he's trying to say. And I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but here's the thing about faith. Faith is actually believing in spite of the consequences. Faith is believing, knowing this is probably going to cost me. Maybe a relationship, maybe a friendship, maybe a job. I don't know, but I believe. That's what faith actually looks like. And I also wanted to share with you that self-denial is different than denial of self. Self Self-denial I can be really good at. I can, well, some of you are going to beg to differ, but I can deny myself food, especially carbohydrates, and I can lose a bunch of weight. I've done it multiple times. I can get slim and trim. That's self-denial. But notice with me, what's the operative word? It's self-denial. The one who is at the root of it is It's me that I'm actually looking out for when I practice self-denial. And in many ways, it's not a bad thing to exercise self-denial, but it's different than denial of self. What denial of self is, it's actually saying, I I don't care about the costs. I don't care what this might mean for me. I am going to pursue Jesus with everything I have. I'm going to completely deny any thought of self in this instance and so the question is what cross has he called you to take up what thing in what way has he called you to actually step out of your comfort zone deny yourself and take up your cross and i'm going to embarrass a couple people right now i'll apologize to them later but owen and jess just stood up here in front of you and they told you about a ministry that has nothing to do with them They sold everything. They walked away from everything. I am certain they had people in their families that said, you are crazy. You have lost your flipping minds to walk away from career and safety and security to go to Africa. Is Jesus even there? I don't think he is. I think he's only here. Denying themselves, knowing that it was going to cost them. I'll also throw Miss Dawn into the mix. Sorry, Miss Dawn. But to walk away from career and success to feed people in Charleston, to give them clothes, don't they know there's government programs? If they won't get a job, they should just take care of themselves. No. She intentionally went out of her way, goes out of her way to deny herself, to take up her cross and follow hard after Jesus. Putting herself on the back burner I have to tell you uh, I stink at this I realized yesterday even in times where I think I'm doing a good job yesterday I'd intended to get my kids out the door to get them to st. Louis on time and so it was all about them but the reality is I just didn't want to be late I mow down all sorts of people their emotions their thoughts their wants why Because I don't like to be late. That's self-denial. I'll skip breakfast to make sure I'm not late. But who's the one that's at the center of that? Over and over and over again, I find I have to look at my motives and go, is that a selfish motive or is it not? And I want to encourage you because the Holy Spirit is the only one that can actually peer into your soul and give you the answer. I can't, only He can. And He's really good at it now then jesus's next question in verse 25 and 26 don't worry this is a light question he says uh, whoever desires his life will lose it whoever loses his life for my sake will find it for what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul and here's the question what will a man give up in exchange for his soul now For most of us, it's really easy to spot those that have given up uh, their souls for things that are way too cheap, right? We we put them into categories. We look at it and go, well, listen, they gave up their soul for drugs, for alcohol, for pleasure, and we go, look, they've just got it all wrong, but me, I've got it all together. The thing is, um, in America, (laughs) it's all about what do I do, what does my W2 look like? It's all about success, right? And so how often do we sacrifice our families at the altar of success? And we paint it up really nice and neat to say, I did it for you. Here you go. I gave up all these things for you. I would tell you that's self-denial, not denial of self. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Jesus goes on then to say in verse 27, He says, For the Son of Man will come in glory of His Father with His angels and then He will reward each according to His works. He doesn't just leave us in a spot of deny yourself, take up your cross, don't worry about the consequences. He doesn't just leave us there. Listen to the promise. He says He's going to come back for us with His angels and reward each of us according to to his works, It is true that in Christianity, this is not a works-based faith. This is how awesome it is. He gives you enough faith to be able to believe in him, and then once you've believed in him, he promises to come back for you and then reward you for the faith that he gave you in the first place. That's the greatest deal of all time. He gives the faith. We just offer up what he's already given to us, and then he turns around and rewards us for it. And so it's very true. We're not here to just work for rewards. But the promise is that he's going to give us rewards anyway. I've heard lots of Christians say, I'm not working for rewards. I'll just give up the rewards. Here's what I want to tell them. If you're going to give up the rewards Jesus is going to give out, I'll take them. I mean, load me up, Lord. When I get up there, pile the crowns on. I'll take the rewards. Who doesn't want a reward? All of us do. And if you begin to picture him as a good, good father, what you find is, as parents, what do we always want to do? Reward our kids, right? Even when they don't deserve it. Even when they don't do a really great job, they just kind of do a good job. I mean, they sort of push the broom around a little bit. I'm excited about rewarding my kids because I love them. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're probably going to bungle the whole thing up. You're not going to do a great job. Here's the thing. It's not about you. It's about your dad getting an opportunity to reward you, even for just trying to get it right, even just trying to get it somewhat down the fairway. What he's saying is I'm going to come and I'm going to reward each according to his works. That's an awesome promise. Now, I'm going to go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Because here's what the Apostle Paul says about what this life has to offer. That's Galatians. No wonder it didn't look right. I'll get there. Awkward silence is what this is called. All right. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, And yet I also count all things loss for the excellence of of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him having not my own righteousness from the law but that which is through faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul says, look, I'm looking back at my life. He's at the end of his road. He's actually sitting in prison writing this letter and he said in everything I've lost, Everything I've given up. The Apostle Paul was on the fast track in Judaism. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. That's the 70 top leaders in Judaism. He had a wife. All of it lost. All of his fame, all of his popularity, all of his finances, all given up. And what he says is, I look at all that and consider it rubbish. That word in the Greek is actually a steaming pile of dung. That's what I consider everything I gave up when compared to Christ Jesus. He says that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What a glorious promise. And so if you're in here today and you are in need of a sign to be able to know Jesus and to know that he loves you, here's all you need to know. While you were yet a sinner, he died for you. That's what Paul says in Romans 5.8, that in the middle of your worst possible season, he gave his life for you. He gave his best when you were at your worst. That's the only sign you should need to know that he loves you. Now then, if we're in a spot as believers where we are too ashamed to actually admit that we love him, too ashamed to take up our cross to ashamed, to deny ourselves. Here's the reality. If we find ourselves in that spot, who then will storm the gates of hell? As Jesus was sharing this story, I'm going to go back a couple slides, but I promise I'm not going to go through the whole message again. But I want you to see the visual of Caesarea Maritime. As Jesus is sharing this story, as he's preaching to these men at Caesarea, Maritime, or Caesarea Philippi, excuse me. He's standing there with this rock cliff behind him. Uh, that area was actually the area that they worshipped this god Pan. And the way they would worship is they would get them up on top of this cliff, these uh, sacrifices, and they would actually take people and they would throw them down into that cave that you see that's got a pool of water at the bottom and jagged rocks. They would throw them off the cliff to their own death. That cave was called the Gate of Hades he's preaching about the very gates of hell but he's speaking of people that would be thrown over into the gates of hell and they would throw enough people in there until they would finally see blood wash out the other side that's when they said that their gods had been satisfied when they'd finally thrown enough people over that they would see blood come forth they would go "All right, now the gods have been satisfied and they would go on about their worship now that's disgusting to us Right? That, that That's repulsive to us. And yet, do you know the reason they worshiped the God Pan? Because they believed he might bring them pleasure and success. And I think about how many people have been sacrificed, have been lost because we were too ashamed of the gospel. We were too ashamed to take up our cross and follow him that person after person gets Chucked over the edge. And that if we are not willing to actually stand up for the message of Jesus, then who is? If we're not willing, I don't need that. If we're not willing to actually pursue and go after him, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 is this For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. That's what Paul shared. So all who believe would be saved. The question is, will I deny myself today? Will I take up my cross? Will I not be ashamed of the testimony that Jesus has given to you? Do you realize that's the power to overcome the enemy? It's your very testimony, the work he's doing, continuing to do in your life. Don't believe it. Just share your story a little bit with someone. Watch their eyes light up. Share scripture. They'll probably fall asleep. Share your story with them. Watch how things change. Wow, you dealt with this. You dealt with that. I I never knew you struggled in that area. Tell me more. Why do they want to know more? Because it's the power unto salvation. It spells out hope for them if we are going to stand a chance against the the gates of hell, it's going to be through the power of our testimony, which is rooted and ground in the Word of God. So Father, we thank You and we praise You for Your Word. Thank You for this Mother's Day and knowing that there is Uh, No greater gift that a mother can be given than to know that her children are saved for all of eternity. Father, I want to specifically lift up those moms that can't say that about their kids. That's a kind of heartbreak and a pain um, that's difficult to even put into words. Father, please save them. Please allow our testimony, our words to go deep into their souls and please bring them back. Please rescue them from the gates of hell. We believe what your word says, that those gates cannot stand against us because of the power you've given to us. Thank you for that power, Lord. And so for those mamas out there that have that on their heart today, please comfort them. Please let them know that their children will not depart. Someday they will come back. Father, for those mothers out there today that do not know you, fully and truly as their Savior, please encourage them to give their lives over, Lord, because there is no greater gift a mom can give her kids than to know that they know that they know that their mama is saved. To be able to stand there and know that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Father, please save mamas. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you're up to as we work through your word. Some of these messages are easier. Some of them are harder, Lord. Thank you for the hard ones. Thank you for the ones that encourage us and prod us along to deny ourselves and to take up our cross, to put ourselves to the background and you to the forefront, Lord. We need you. We want you. We desire for you to live through us. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Search the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise treasures the fame. There's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you. There's nothing. Nothing is better than you.
0: The church says, amen. Thank you guys so much for coming out. Uh, thank you for giving me grace to go a little bit long today. Uh, don't worry, you weren't going to beat the Methodist to the KFC anyway. So you're just going to be a little later. Maybe the line will die down by the time you get there. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, guys, if you need any prayer uh, whatsoever, feel free to see me. Um, if for any reason there's a, a doubt, a shred in your mind uh, that you do not know him, please come up here. We'll talk about that. Uh, if there is any question in your mind that you've walked away and you want to talk about that, do not miss the opportunity to pray. It doesn't have to happen here. It can happen anywhere. Uh, he is everywhere, by the way. Uh, but I just want to encourage you in that. Have a great week. Happy Mother's Day. God bless.